Remain standing for the reading of the text from the fifth chapter of Matthew as we now continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, picking up where we last left off. And here we now enter into the fourth of six sections where Jesus prefaced his saying, Now you have heard that it is said, but I say unto you, and knowing that he is not changing the law, he is not abrogating the law. He is not doing away with the law at all. He is bringing clarity and definition to exactly what the law has been all along, but where the Pharisees and scribes and through generations of God's people have perverted it and skewed it and brought a different meaning. And then others were raised up under these meanings. So this thing, these things sounded quite uh, controversial, but in fact they were what it was from the beginning. So I'll begin reading at verse 33 through verse 37, a passage that has brought much confusion to God's people and why I've chosen to really only introduce this today to give a further background to it. Now hear the reading of God's Word from Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how we look to you for great clarity an understanding of this often misunderstood text, and that you would anoint the speaker now with your spirit to keep him in the path of righteousness in that which he speaks and that which he preaches. May it be from your spirit and truth. We pray with fear and trembling that we would understand the text before us, even its broader context in which it is placed, so that we might live more faithfully, and that we might embrace the glory that is before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it obviously seems pretty clear by this particular passage and just by these very words what the text is saying. However, there has been many Christians who have turned to this particular passage to warrant them not to take any oaths or vows. That seems on the surface what it says. But there is an, a fundamental way in which we interpret the Scripture, and that is with Scripture itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. So whatever this passage is saying, it cannot come in any contradiction to any other passage of Scripture because we know that God does not contradict Himself, and this is the Word of God, so the Word cannot contradict itself. We have had some folks that have come into heritage struggling to take membership vows because of this passage. We have entire denominations that have taken a stance to take no oaths. In fact, in the 17th century, Quakers were imprisoned for refusing to take oaths. It is an age-old problem from a misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching here and what God would have us to believe. I've had good, solid Presbyterian elders that look to this passage and hesitate on taking oaths and vows of any sort or form 
considering that perhaps we shouldn't be doing so at all. Now on the surface, this passage does seem to sound like Jesus is speaking against any kind of oath-taking or vows, but we have to remember the context of this sermon and what Jesus is doing. There are six examples in this sermon where Jesus begins in some form of, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you. And what we have heard or what they have heard is not necessarily what the Bible has said, and more specifically, it's not what the Bible ever meant. And the scribes and the Pharisees has interpreted the Bible to mean certain things that it really never suggested. And Jesus is clearing up those erroneous interpretations, clarifying that indeed that is not the intent of the Bible, that is not the law of God that has been from the beginning, and that is not what Moses or anyone else has ever taught. Your interpretation, scribes and Pharisees. And our current passage is the fourth illustration of six in that particular clarification. Now it is easy to grow up listening to something that you believe that the Bible teaches, and yet when challenged in a new and a fresh way, you come to find out that's not at all what the Bible had taught all along. We all have such baggage with us. We all continue to understand and grow each day as our understanding is enlightened with the truth. Now some might be in that situation today. That might be the case for you today regarding the very current passage that you do believe that there is that Jesus um, forbids any kind of oaths or vows. And one of the problems in approaching this particular text is not only does it appear on the surface to prohibit all forms of oaths and vows, but we live in a culture that is so foreign to the covenantal culture of Scripture. So foreign. We are not covenantal people. And particularly in our society, in our place, in our nation, and even the way our nation was founded and grown and sanctified and grown in the church, we are not a covenantal people. By nature, we're not. And by indoctrination, we're not. By our background and history, we are not. And that is why I think there's an additional stumbling block for us to understand something that is very foreign to us, and that is a covenantal culture of Scripture. And if we don't enter back into the scriptural life of this covenantal culture, it will be very difficult for us to ever see the reality of what Jesus is doing with the scribes and Pharisees and understand the appropriateness of oaths and vows. And yet some people will shrug their shoulders and say, well, what's the big deal? I don't ever have to take an oath or a vow anyway, or I'll just choose not to do that, so I'm covered and I don't really need to know anymore. I'm good. Are you married? The very thing that makes you different in your marriage and what makes a marriage a marriage is the vow that you took with the one to whom you're married and apart from which you're just living with someone in adultery. The very mindset of not even ever feeling the need or think it ever necessary to take an oath or a vow is foreign to the culture and the teaching of the Word of God. 
But in the 21st century, when couples don't feel the need to be married and can simply live together, people don't have a sense of commitment. Christians in wholesale fashion resist membership in any local church. It's not hard to show that taking vows and oaths is something that this culture is not big on. This morning's message is really an excursus for us in order to set the context and a biblical background so that we will never again come to this text thinking that this text or anywhere in the Bible prohibits us from ever taking lawful oaths and vows. In fact, I would say you must do so. Well, pastor, didn't you just read? Didn't you just read what it says that for whatever is more than these is from the evil one? Well, you're going to have to make a decision this morning with me promoting lawful oaths and vows if I am speaking from the evil one or clarifying something that the evil one has distorted the text. And that is why I think it's important for us to back up and see the broader context before we even unpack the very thing that we're before us here. So my objective this morning is to provide background. Next week, we'll unpack. If we ever think in such a way as I have described, we don't like to make commitments. We fall short on these matters. I don't feel like I ever need to make an oath. I believe oaths are unbiblical and unlawful. It really is a character of the manner of a fallen world and not the manner of the Bible. And I want you to enter back into this culture of the Bible. The Bible is so emphatic that oaths and vows are such a part of your redemptive life that the Bible expressly commands Christians to take oaths. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him, and you shall take oaths in His name. Now, if that Bible is true, and that's from the Word of God, we have to compare that directly against what Jesus is saying, knowing there's no contradiction. Not only is the Bible seen to command taking oaths in God's name, there is something very good about it. There are blessings that come from taking oaths and vows properly, appropriately, in God's name. And in this verse, it actually puts it right up there with serving God and fearing God. It is, in fact, this particular positive aspect of oath-taking that the Pharisees sought to capitalize on but while changing the terms in order to justify their perjury, yet still hoping to receive the blessings of the oath. Now, if you didn't digest that, I'll probably regurgitate it a number of times, but that is so true of our society today. We want to take the blessings of something, and yet we are living in perjury against the very thing that was designed to bring us the blessings. Or may it said another way, we desire to eat the fruit of the tree, while at the same time we're chopping it down. One thing we should note is that oaths and vows are very much a part of the ancient biblical culture. But because there's so much confusion, particularly in our own culture, oaths and vows, I want to provide some background, some essential background to this passage this morning about the only 
context we have for taking oaths in our society tend to be negative. We have long contracts, pages upon pages upon pages, if you were to go and even buy a car. In fact, the contracts for buying cars today even surpass the buying of houses, and houses surpass those of your will and testament. And all of these legal contracts are necessary because we, by nature, cheat and we lie and we take advantage of each other at the expense of other people. That's indicative of this fallen world, and it has been from the beginning. We take oaths in the court of law to help individuals understand the gravity of speaking the truth and use to motivate people in fear of punishment if they were to ever be found in a lie. And this is a negative aspect of oaths and vows, and it is one aspect of them, and certainly one that Jesus was addressing when He encouraged us for our yes to be yes and our no to be no, and that our word needs to be good and have integrity in how we speak, and we are to speak truth because we are sons of truth. We are not to pervert, distort, hedge, any way the truth. But that is not really getting to the full impact of the very positive aspects of oaths and vows, and we normally don't think about it that way. So before I dig into the passage, let's consider the biblical culture in which God breathed His Word, and from there, how we are to be shaped in this culture. First of all, let me say this. Our Christian faith is a life of a confessional life. Among other things, our Christian life is a verbal life. What we say has very much a part of our redemptive life. And that is why we are not to swear falsely. We are not to take the Lord's name in vain. We are not to speak with unwholesome and unedifying words. We are not to have any corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth, but that which is good, that it may minister grace to the hearers. We have a verbal life. And our Christian walk is very much, or I should say our verbal life, is very much a part of our Christian life. In fact, Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, with the mouth confession is made into salvation. You might say one thing, And say that you believe another thing, but those two, the Lord weighs equally. Because if you ever deny Him with your mouth, He will deny you with His. Paul tells Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. He says again, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith. Romans 3, 4, as it is written, you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Our verbal life is very much a part of the Christian life in which we live. We are defined by what we say and what we speak. Because it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's very much important to realize In everything that you text another individual, say about somebody else, 
what you put in your emails, what you say to others, and what you say about others behind their back. It is all a part of what defines you, of what characterizes you. You are characterized by your words. The Christian life very much includes the world of language, and this is very relevant when we come to the very current passage that we're addressing that's speaking about oaths and vows and yeses and noes. Because the culture that the Bible reveals is a covenantal culture. It's a foreign culture to us. But one that God has placed us out of the kingdom of darkness into the the kingdom of His dear Son, into the kingdom of light. And that kingdom is a covenantal culture. He's taken us out of a different kind of life and put us into a different one, which is radically, fundamentally different at its core. When man fell into sin, he shows a counterculture to this covenantal culture. Sin's counterculture is dominated by autonomy. I want to do it myself. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Even when we submit to our authorities, we still recoil in our spirit when our authorities tell us to do something that we don't want to do. And submission is only tested when you disagree with your authorities, not when you agree with them. That shows something here. Our individualism, this sin's counterculture is also characterized by individualism. The world I live in is about me and myself and I. This is my little world. It revolves around me. I want you to please me. I want y'all for me and my benefits and what I want to do and what I like and what I desire. And this ego is individualism. That is sin's counterculture, which is so antithetical to covenantal culture that for the rest of our lives, we will learn what it means to live in the biblical culture of covenant and out of the old man that we came from. I do what I want to do, says the individual. Be different from everyone else. Express yourself and your individuality. Make your statement. Be different. Sin's counterculture is characterized by self, by ego of individuals. And the fruit of this kind of life and culture is dominated by greed, by lust, by intimidating anger. I'll get what I want. Or I'll try to get what I want by getting angry at you so that you will yield to my desires. It's characterized by selfish ambitions and personal achievements and endeavors at the expense of others. It is characterized by like, 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 like. How many likes did I get today? It is characterized by the measurements and the metrics of that which we get from others to make us feel of some worth. The 
the revival the Bible reveals to us, and in Christ He saves us out of that world into an entirely different lifestyle and culture, completely antithetical. And that word is a word that is called covenant. And I have actually coined a term, because I don't know if anybody else that uses this, and I have looked it up in the dictionary, and I don't think it's existing, uh, but it is an adjective that you've seen me use before for covenantal. Covenantal. Your life is covenantal. Our culture should be covenantal. The church is covenantal. Our relationship with God is covenantal. It expresses, it describes the life that we live. The Bible is unified with covenants. The word is so important for Christians to understand that we need to understand covenants if we're going to understand the the gospel. The relationship we have with God is covenantal. The framework in which God deals with, even in the Godhead, is covenantal. The relationship we have with one another as Christians is covenantal. God has always existed as a society, never as the individual. That's the very nature of God. One, but in three persons. At the very heart of the Trinity structure, that is what governs all of our life. When God first made man in the garden, He defined the very nature of His relationship with man in terms of a covenantal relationship. In fact, God never relates to any person of any creature of man ever on this earth apart from a covenantal relationship. The very relationship with which God relates to us is a covenant relationship. Some are under condemnation of God and eternally damned because they have broken the covenant. And they, upon upon themselves, have gained the repercussions of that broken relationship. And God is obligated because of that relationship to give that to them. Others have been saved by Christ and brought into a new relationship with Christ and God, and that relationship is also a covenantal relationship. For every individual in a covenant relationship with God, it is necessarily places us in a covenant relationship with one another. And the binding structure of the relationship that God established for man always binds us to others because it is a Trinitarian relationship. God saves us as a people, as individuals, collectively into one to reflect His own nature of oneness existing in three persons. Your salvation always includes your relationship with other people and is never inseparable from it. In fact, your relationship with God requires you to be in a relationship with other people because the very nature of that relationship is covenantal. And that's why the redeemed life cannot live out alone or unto oneself, like the old antithetical world out of which you have been redeemed. The individual world, the autonomous world, is not indicative of the kingdom of light. 
You cannot be a Christian and live apart from the church. You might think you can. You might claim Christ. But you cannot. Now I want us to take a little more look at this covenant relationship that exists between us and God and by extension with one another. A covenant is a formal relationship. And what characterizes that relationship are basically four things. Right, students? I don't pretend this morning that you have a complete grasp upon this simply because you just have been tested on it. And perhaps because I have drilled this into you and you've been tested on it and I re-examined your papers of reason maybe why I am teaching this this morning because this is so foreign to us, this covenant of life. But a covenant relationship is that which we all are in. It is a formal relationship. By nature, the covenant is a relationship, and the only relationship God has with us is through a covenant relationship. It has, it's a formal relationship. The four things that actually characterize this kind of relationship, first of all, you have to have parties. People have to be in a party with God, right? They're, God's a party and we're a party. So you have parties of, a, of covenant. Now, covenants can happen between people, but a covenant is a formal relationship between two or more people. But as God saves us, it's a relationship that He has entered into with us. Second of all, a characteristic is, are the responsibilities and obligations. There's always responsibilities in every relationship anybody has ever been in with another person. Or it simply isn't a relationship. There is no such thing in being in a biblical relationship without responsibilities to fulfill and obligations to heed. And some of you here this morning who are members of this church need to hear that. If you are in a faithful covenant relationship with your God, there are responsibilities to fulfill and obligations to heed. This is what is called the obedience unto the gospel. It is not a salvation by works. It is being faithful to the covenant that God has saved you and living in that covenant fidelity so that you may appropriate and receive and enjoy the very blessings designed in this relationship. But a third aspect that characterizes a covenant relationship are promises. Now, promises take a form of one of two different directions. There's a positive form in that promises are given of blessings when there is covenant fidelity and faithfulness, but there are also curses if there is infidelity. The thing that there is not is any middle ground. There is no middle ground with God. You're either under His curse or under His blessing. You will be receiving blessings or under His curse and receiving curses. No middle ground. Well, I can be in the church and just love the world. I can do what I want to do and still be a member of the church. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You come to this table this morning and we will receive of the bread and the wine and it will either be a blessing or a curse. It will not leave you the same depending on how you come. There's promises, but the promises are for blessings, for fidelity, 
for fulfilling those responsibilities and obligations within that covenant relationship, and there are curses for not. And then fourth, there are sacraments, typically, and particularly so when it's a covenant relationship that God deals with us in. And most often in Scripture, where there is a covenant bond and relationship that is being established, He also reveals a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is a physical symbol that God has given us that signifies the very terms of the reality of this relationship in which we are in Him. In, in the time that we live, we have baptism in the Lord's Supper, and every Lord's Day you hear me say, and the, Jesus took the cup and He blessed it and gave thanks and says, this is the cup of the New Testament. That's the New Covenant. This is... Something about which symbolizes and seals the very truth of the relationship that you have with God in Christ Jesus. And those sacraments are physical ordinances and one of the channels through which God blesses those who are living in covenant faithfulness. Now everyone is a covenant relationship in some sense or another, even if they don't like it, even if they don't agree with it. Simply the world in which we were made by our Creator. It binds us to the requirements that God establishes for us. For every man there is either blessings or curses. There are no other options because those are the terms of the relationship that we have with God. Now, this covenantal structure is an entire culture, an environment that defines Christian living, the sphere in which we are to live. And indicative to this covenantal redemptive environment in which we are to live are oaths and vows. You wonder how I was going to connect those dots. (laughs) Are oaths and vows. Oaths and vows are covenantal because they are one of the characteristics that defines the very relationship when God promises and God swears and God takes vows and He takes oaths in this very relationship to redeem us. We also reciprocate in an oath to God and vows to live in fidelity to Him. The oaths and the vows are covenantal. They bind us to our God and to other people. And when they are fulfilled in fidelity and faithfulness, there are great blessings that result. One of the things that motivated God's people to willingly, voluntarily take oaths and vows is for the very blessings that results when he is faithful to keep his vows. This is something that we don't hear about today. We would just rather not take a vow. We would just rather not take an oath because it all has negative connotation to us. But what motivated people in the biblical covenantal framework was in certain cases to take an oath and to take a vow because of the very blessings they would bring for faithfulness.
There were specific Old Testament sacrifices that were prescribed for the very duty or the very aspect of bringing vows and making oaths to God. And there was an expectation that if you brought a vow to God and you lived faithfully to that vow, that God would so bless that vow. It is really in that context that Ecclesiastes warns us about it. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow, than to vow and not pay. Now, our waywardness in our minds, because of our autonomy and individualism, tends to hedge on that and say, well, if it's better not to pay, or not to vow and not to pay, then better just not to vow altogether. I'll just live in the safety of that realm and not ever take a vow to begin with. Am I right to assume that most of us really don't understand the positive nature and the benefit of worshipful acts before God and vows? Am I right to assume that? This is the positive aspects of oaths and vows that is completely lacking from our understanding and most of our theology. We'd rather think, oh, it would be better just not to ever take a vow at all. But that, uh, or that perhaps the risk outweighs the reward. But that's not the way that God thinks, nor is it the way that would be, he would have for us. Some vows and some oaths are absolutely unavoidable. And yet, by going even beyond and taking a vow voluntarily, to God with certain aspects, trusting in Him, and yet living faithfully to that vow with great sobriety and gravitas, you can expect great blessings from God in return. In fact, a vow is something that you speak to God, and it is that which is done in prayer. There are Vows are, to God, certain types of praying. The first glimpse of an oath that we have in Scripture really is given before any of us were ever here, and that is an eternity between God the Father and God the Son. And there was an oath that God the Father swore to God the Son to make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have these interactions of God's communication and relationship between God the Father and God the Son before any of us were ever here. We have a glimpse of that from Psalm 110, and we have other aspects of that given to us in Scripture. But not only did God swear from one person to another person in the Godhead, He also swore to man. Hebrews chapter 6 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them the end of all the dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. 
that by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. God swore to Abraham. He took a vow and an oath to Abraham because he could swear by none greater. He swore by himself to assure Abraham of his covenant fidelity. His word is true. And Abraham would be the great recipient of the blessings that God would have in fulfilling that very vow to him. God was under no obligation to Abraham to make this voluntary vow. But he wanted to assure Abraham and bolster his faith to absolute immutability in God that he sealed it with an oath. An important aspect of this covenantal structure that God is dealing with his people is the fact that the very smallest unit in which God deals covenantally with people is not the individual but the household. He always deals at the very smallest unit with a society. Yeah? With a society. Now, he deals with individuals, yes, but never apart from a greater society. So that when God makes the covenant with Abraham, it's the covenant he also swore to Isaac and Jacob. When he makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm making this covenant with you and to your seed. When he makes a covenant with David, he says, and I'm swearing to David and to his seed, to his children. When I'm making this covenant with Noah, it is Noah and his household. When I'm making this covenant with you, parents, this promise is to you and to your children and to those afar off and to as many as the Lord himself shall call. And that is a relationship that we need to understand and embrace a little bit more. Because when God deals with us, He Himself has taken oaths. And that even puts us under an obligation to Him to reciprocate fidelity to Him in order to receive the blessings. Now, it's an important principle to consider because of this covenantal culture in which we live. Our life is always broader than our own individual selves. We cannot simply live life independently. We cannot simply live life in isolation. We cannot live life by ourselves, to ourselves. Life simply will not work that way. We are never alone in this world, and we are never alone in this covenantal framework. Now, all of this is in background for what is yet to come, and so let me mention just a few more things here, and then we'll close. First of all, there's a societal institution that we call marriage, and marriage in Malachi is defined as a covenant relationship. What makes marriage a marriage is that covenant relationship with vows given to each other. Another societal institution that God has established is the church. And there is no question that the church is a covenantal relationship. The sacraments make that clear. It is the sacraments that have been given to the church. It is the sacraments that are for the church. And the sacraments are called symbols and signs of the covenant. And so when we take of the cup, we are taking of the blood of the covenant. 
When God redeems an individual, He brings that individual into a new covenantal context where he and she has a relationship with all of the others in that same relationship with God. See, the parties of your relationship with God are God and yourself individually, but now God, with you as an individual, is part of the body that He has saved as the church where you are only a member. And that covenant relationship is characterized by promises, oaths, and vows. We have promises made by God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. And promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. And we are to know and we are to live by those promises. But we also make promises to God. And that is why our Christianity is a confessional religion. We confess God. God promises to bless us. We promise to give Him our life. We promise fidelity to Him. And if you do not make that promise to God, you are not His. Baptism is a sign of the covenant that embodies God's promises in the Lord's Supper as well. But these blessings will never be received by you unless you give yourself by faith to Christ in your committed promise to Him. This faith includes vows made to God. And these vows, you will find that as He gives grace to be faithful to these vows and fulfill them, you will receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Do not be afraid of making a vow to God. Just take it very seriously and always pay what you vow. Do not be careless. Ever be careless with vows. Do not be careless with your baptism. Do not be careless at the Lord's Supper. These are oath-taking vows in the realm of vows in which we are promising our fidelity to God by the grace of God. We see Jacob at the Bethel dream vision encountering God and he swore that if God brought him back to his father's land in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And there was a vow. We see others who were bound under Nazarite vows, and some by life. Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. Those were oaths and vows for those particular men for all of their life that they were bound under. We see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament frequently subscribing vows. We see forms of vows. God do so to me and more also if. And that's a form of a vow. We have the Apostle Paul going to Jerusalem and not against his conscience, but full in line with what was the culture of the day, taking a vow and making an oath and taking that into a sacrificial element into the Jerusalem without the breach of conscience. We have the command of Scripture to take vows and oaths and to to ratify this very life that we live with God. Commitment is not one of those terms that is going to be described of our society and of this generation, but that is exactly what God demands of us for faithfulness. 
It needs to become a part of our life, a part of our culture. And when you tell someone you're going to be there or do something, you need to have integrity to let your yes be yes and your no, no. And that needs to govern our Christian life. But there are appropriate times and times when we are to ratify with a certain gravity to God something. A vow. An oath. And when we do, we have to pay it. We must pay it. We live in a day today that we think that good intentions equate to fulfillment. And that is not the truth. Oh, we have a good intention to fulfill what we had promised, but because we are people that are in this fallen world, we fall down upon that and then we wink at it and then we pretty soon have seared conscience over that and we just live in a whole different kind of culture. But God says, no, you fulfill what you say and if you ever take a vow, then you must pay it no matter what. That's why we have, and the church has always had, baptismal, Vows. Church membership, vows. Just like our marriage, vows. Our vows to God is, Lord, I will serve you with all of my life. I'm going to follow you by the grace of God. I give you my life. I am vowing to you. And if you can't come to that place in your life with God before you as your witness... You cannot be His disciple. I'm afraid our culture has watered this down so much that we have good intentions, and that's good enough. We join the church to have our membership on the rolls, and that's good enough. But the fulfillment of the vows is that which is the truth that embodies every bit of what these things symbolize. It has always been a part of the biblical culture to take vows and oaths and to fulfill them. It is not so much a part of our own culture, and it has never been much a part of the sin culture except to warrant against the abuse and dishonesty and cheating and lies of fallen man. As a Christian, we're under obligation to fulfill our vows to God. There's blessing. There's sanctification. It is an informal means of grace as we so do. And there's an element when we come to the table of the Lord in just a few moments that this is a ratification of a vow that we made a long time ago with Him that we will be His and we will live faithfully. We will follow Jesus. And now we come to the table of the Lord in this worthy manner. Worthy in union with one another by whom we are bound in covenant relationship as the one body of Christ. Now all of this is the background because as we began to unpack the interpretation that the scribes and the Pharisees had abused and and taught, and as we live in a culture today that even in churches today say, in some cases, that it's not lawful to take any vows or oaths, and some whole denominations have been characterized like this, we need to understand that is not the framework in which God works with us salvifically. It is not covenantal. And why it finds so easy to register with us when we don't want to commit to anything, but always leave our options open for something better. 
Life is blessed when there's covenants. And life is blessed with covenant fidelity. And covenant fidelity is outlined and defined for us in these vows and oaths. Your marriage should be stronger. Your relationship with your children deeper. And your relationship with one another in the church more unified as this truth becomes fruitful in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we confess that we live in a world that just teaches us autonomy and rebellion and individualism and adorns the things that are ugly and heinous in your sight. And yet we embrace it and cloak it and baptize it and bring it into the church and think that we can continue to live like that, but yet in such a way that is foreign to what your Bible teaches. And so we ask for clarity of your Spirit to teach us what your Bible so often reiterates in terms of the covenant relationship that we have with God and by virtue of that with each other. Grant us grace (coughs) to be faithful. (coughs) We pray that you would give us clarity to know how to live it out, how to make application to the principles, and know that there are times and occasions when it is good, important, necessary, and appropriate to take vows to each other and to our God in your name. And so we ask for wisdom to unpack the rest of this passage in subsequent weeks and help us to live faithfully to you. If there is anyone here under the false pretense of their profession, but yet whose heart is far from you, we pray that even through this message that they would understand their obligations and responsibilities to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and to give him their lives. And we pray that you would work savingly among us this day and save us from our old self and give us a delight in the covenantal life, in the Trinitarian life to which you saved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.